Our text this morning is Romans chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 4 to 8. For the past couple of weeks, as Jason has been taking you through the rest of chapter 3, coming into chapter 4, we finally got the good news. Finally got the good news of Christ. You have the first couple of chapters there that is indicting everyone, indicting the Gentiles under sin, indicting the Jews under sin. You all are not safe because you bear the name Jew or you have circumcision, the seal of circumcision, or you have the law. None of these things make you safe because, as Paul will say, and as we will talk about later as well, that the Jews are committing the same sins that the Gentiles are committing, even though they have the law. And they are under the righteous judgment of God because we know, as Paul says, that all sin is deserving of wrath. Even the sins that he recounted to the Jewish people. This is what you're doing. But then he finally gets to the great news. The best news. After hearing or after telling his audience that there are none righteous. And these are all coming from the Old Testament is what we talked about. Primarily from the Psalms. When you're looking at verses 10 and following, 10 to 18, every one of these statements is from the Psalms except for one. Only one statement is actually from Isaiah. The rest are from the Psalms. He tells them that there are none righteous. There's none who understands. There's none who seek after God. All have turned aside. All have went aside to their own ways. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. All of this bad news. But then he gives the greatest news. And the greatest news is that apart from the law, the righteousness of God was manifested. It was made known. It was witnessed by the law and the prophets, but it was made known in Christ. And it was Christ who the Father displayed publicly as a propitiation for our sins. He was our satisfaction. And so then Paul says towards the end of chapter 3, as you have already been taught, where's the boasting? Where, where, where is it possible that anyone may boast, considering that it was God who in Christ is the one who purchased our redemption? So what, do, what then do you do to drive the point home further? As he is specifically talking to the Jews who are being exposed for their hypocrisy, their self-righteousness. What else can you say in order to drive this point home further? You're not safe. You're not able to keep the works of the law is what you think. You're not able to have circumcision and the knowledge of the law be called a Jew and think to yourself that you are safe from God's wrath. What's, what more can he do? Well, he can use Abraham as an example. The apostle has been laboring the point that one is justified by faith alone. Not by any works. All are guilty. All are in need of God's grace so what more can he do but to say that Abraham himself was justified by faith? The one who was revered by the Jewish people. They say a number of times in the Gospels that we have Abraham as our father. The great patriarch of Israel. And the great patriarch of Israel needed to be justified. And needed to be justified by another's righteousness being credited to him. That believing he might be declared righteous himself. 
that if the patriarch of the faith was justified by faith alone, that it is evident, and it should be evident to Paul's Jewish audience especially, that no one can be saved by the works of the law. If this is the man that you revere, this is the man that you honor, this is the man to whom you take pride in being of his lineage, and he needed to be justified by faith, he needed another's righteousness credited to him, what does that say about you? So he's using Abraham as the prime example to drive the point home further that a man is justified by faith and by faith alone. And as we'll see in our text, that this, is, this has always been the truth. This has always been the reality when it comes to salvation. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We acknowledge that. We say that often. Attempting to be right with the Lord by your own deeds or your works will only lead to misery. And even for those that are in Christ who fall into this trap of trying to uh, gain God's favor by your performance, what does it lead to? It only leads to further misery because you recognize you can't do it. And you're looking at yourself. You're not looking away from yourself and unto Christ. So attempting to be right with the Lord... By your own deeds, by your own performance leads to misery. But there is indeed tremendous joy when we accept who we really are in light of a holy God. That we have nothing to offer, but that he grants salvation in his son in spite of us, in spite of ourselves. There is great joy seeing God in all of his grace and all of his mercy seeing Christ and all that he had accomplished on behalf of sinners. And this is what Paul's emphasizing in our passage today. There's nothing you can do. God is indebted to no one. And this teaching is vital to the truth of the gospel. As Jason had told you there last week, that Luther called justification by faith the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Calvin called it, called it the, the hinge of the Reformation. That's how important it is. It's vital to the gospel. It's vital to salvation, understanding the importance of this doctrine. So as we work our way through this passage and seeing these very truths that Paul is bringing out for us today, I pray indeed that it will lead you to delight in our Lord even more so, knowing that his salvation is by a pure act of his grace and his grace alone in Christ alone. If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's word. And we are looking at Romans chapter 4, verses 4 to 8. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Now to, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. And Father, we pray and we ask that the Spirit of God would move mightily within our midst this morning, applying this passage to our hearts, giving us understanding, giving us greater delight in you, Father, rebuking us for trusting in ourselves or our performance. Father, may our hearts be led even more to to look to Christ and to see him as the object 
of our hope and our peace with you and him only. May you do a mighty work within our hearts today. I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. So in chapter 4, Paul has introduced Abraham. What do we say about Abraham? The forefather according to the flesh. And again, understand what he's trying to do. What Paul is, is laboring to do here. He's not just wanting to bring up Abraham just for any old reason. He has been indicting everyone under sin. He has been acknowledging to the Jews, yes, the Gentiles... They're committing sin that's worthy of death, but so are you. As we talked about beforehand, some of the most difficult people to reach are those who think themselves to be okay. And they're okay for a number of reasons. Maybe they grew up in church. Maybe that they went down and and prayed uh, the, the prayer for Jesus to come into their hearts, and they were led to do so during this big altar call or whatever. And so they, they have assurance in what they have stated at one time, this one prayer, or growing up in church, whatever the case may be, and then they live their life however, but they believe themselves to be right with God. And, and make no mistake, folks, this, this is something that we talk about often, but this is a reality. This is something that is very true. People are honestly deceived, and we say, well, isn't that judging? But it is judging, yes, and we are to judge the fruits of another. But at the same time, you have to understand that this is something that, that, has, that has brought people into this, this deception. Telling them that because you prayed this prayer and I was a witness that you prayed this prayer, don't ever doubt your salvation again. But there's no follow-up here. There's no follow-up of, well, you prayed this prayer, believing in Christ unto salvation. Now, let's, let's go further. This is... This is even more so of who Christ is. This is more of of what Christ has done. This is what Christ delights in. These are the things that he has called us to do as his people. Do you delight in that? And time will tell. For anyone who professes Christ, time will tell whether or not they delight in the things of God or they don't. So some of the most difficult people are those who believe themselves already to be in right standing with God. These are the people to whom Paul is addressing here, the Jews. And so he brings up Abraham. What about Abraham? He was highly regarded by the Jews. They they honored Abraham. I mean, you have some passages of Scripture, like John the Baptist rebuking the Jews in Matthew chapter 3, because of their, their belief Uh, having Abraham as their father. And he specifically says to them, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father after pronouncing judgment upon them. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Don't say that you have Abraham. The Jews said to Jesus in John chapter 8, we are Abraham's descendants. Abraham is our father. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham. Because this is the mindset of the Jews in the first century. They revered Abraham. They honored Abraham. 
They, they thought that Abraham himself must have been righteous before God according to his works. You have a number of 2nd century writings that describe the view of Abraham. One is, is similar to what the scripture says, but in 1st Maccabees chapter 2, you have this written, Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? You have the writings of Yeshua ben Sirah, who was a 2nd century scribe. He was highly revered. Here's what he says of Abraham. Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High and entered into covenant with him. He certified the covenant in his flesh, and when he was tested, he proved faithful. There's no one like him in glory. In the book of Jubilees, it says, quote, For Abraham was perfect in all of his actions with the Lord and was pleasing through righteousness and was pleasing through righteousness all of the days of his life. Abraham was perfect in all of his actions with the Lord. Now all we have to do is crack open the book of Genesis and we see otherwise. We see that Abraham lied. Abraham, as Jason had said, Abraham not only lies to Pharaoh twice, two different Pharaohs, the same lie. Because he's not trusting in God, but he also commits adultery. He tries to jump the gun when it comes to uh, having the covenant child. Again, uh, out of a lack of faith. How is he perfect in all of his ways? J.B. Fesco says, For the first century Jews, Abraham was a righteous and godly man who secured his righteous status by his obedience. He goes on to say this, though. For Paul, Abraham was ungodly, and he secured his righteous status by faith alone in God's promise. And that's what Paul is doing here. He is saying, the one to whom, whom you take pride in because you're of his lineage, you honor him, you revere him, he's a great patriarch. He was an ungodly man. And he needed to be justified by faith. So again, if you use Abraham as the, the great example because everyone reveres Abraham, and then what is that going to say to them? Because in the same question that they presented Jesus with, you're not greater than our father Abraham. Well, the same question then is back to them. Are you greater than your father Abraham? And they would not... They would not go that far to say that they are. And it's, a, it's interesting. And it's, it's sometimes difficult to understand perhaps how, how much that they revered Abraham. But if we think about maybe some contemporary examples of, of different religions or Christian cults, uh, you have the Jews that revered Abraham perhaps in the same way as Muslims revere Muhammad. You say something bad about Muhammad, but they get very angry, Right? Because he's the great patriarch of their faith. If you say something to Buddhists about Buddha, they get angry. Or if you say something about Joseph Smith to Mormons, they get angry. Why? Because they revere them so much. So in the same way, we can, we can kind of catch a little bit of a glimpse as to why the Jews revered 
Abraham the way that, or in, in what manner the Jews revered Abraham in the first century. In this kind of a way. Not according to reality, not according to truth, but according to some of the opinions that began to spring up in the second century B.C. So what's implied here? If you use Abraham as your example, and he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does it say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? So Abraham was a sinner, is what Paul is saying, and could have never been justified by his works. Fesco goes on to say, Paul affirmed in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 24, God freely justifies the ungodly. Paul indirectly calls Abraham ungodly. This continues to challenge the idea that Abraham earned his salvation in any way and echoes the truth of Romans 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which includes the great patriarch of Israel, Abraham. So now, having used Abraham as his prime example of the necessity of being justified by faith, because Abraham was justified by faith, it, it, it removes, again, as he has been doing thus far, it removes any foundation of assurance that they would have in anything else concerning their ancestry or concerning the law, concerning the seal of the covenant, so now Paul emphasizes, he goes further, uses Abraham. Abraham is justified by faith, not by works. So then Paul says, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. So here's the reality of it. If you say that one can earn their salvation, that one can perform the deeds that God requires and do so to the extent that, God, that they can earn their, their favor with God then you're making God a debtor to men. That's what's happening. We can perform works of righteousness, earning God's favor. We can have obedience like Abraham. We can keep the law like Moses had given. But then we make God a debtor. Uh, the Greek rendering of this, just to put it according to oh, some of these words that is, that is actually in the text... It says, now to the one working, the reward is not accounted according to grace, but according to debt. Giving what is due is according to debt. It's, it's the same as, as a laborer. A laborer works for the employer. The laborer performs his or her duties according to whatever the, the employer has commanded of them or hired them for. And now the employer is under obligation to pay them their wages. They earned what they made, and the employer pays. The employer is indebted to the employee for performing the specific duties that he had given them, or she had given them. This is the same. This is the same concept here. God would be indebted to whoever because of the performance of his or her duties. And that's exactly what Paul is saying does not happen and cannot happen because what has already taken place, what he has already emphasized is none are righteous. So if none are righteous, there is no possibility that you can earn favor with God. It's not even remotely possible. Paul has already laid the groundwork as he has in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 for saying what he is now. 
All sin is worthy of God's wrath. That's what he says to his Jewish audience. He says to them, and God renders to each according to their deeds. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The earned wages for anyone who is to work for salvation to attempt to make God a debtor to them is justice. That's the earned wage. Wrath. Paul will go on to say that the wages of sin is death. So the emphasis here, again, is on faith and faith alone. He goes on to say, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You have these over here that are laboring, performing works of righteousness or rites or ceremonies, whatever it is that they believe themselves uh, to be doing and to earning God's favor. And Paul says, the one who does not work, the one who does not labor, the one who is spiritually bankrupt, who understands that there is nothing that he or she can do, who is left in a hopeless state, these are the ones through their faith that God justifies. God doesn't justify the godly. God justifies the ungodly. That's the point. And God has always justified the ungodly. The only one who was ever declared to be just and righteous was Christ. Him only. So the one who doesn't work but believes, these are those who are justifies, who God justifies. And their faith is credited as righteousness. What is it that they're believing? What do they believe? Well, we go back to what Jason had went over in verses 21 and through the rest of chapter 3. We believe that the righteousness of God is manifested. It was witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We believe that we're justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ. We believe that God displayed Him publicly as a propitiation in His blood for our sins. So we are believing in someone outside of ourselves. We're believing in the performance of another outside of ourselves in order to be justified before a holy God. And that's why to try to work and labor for salvation to earn God's favor is an insult to the holiness of God. Because you cannot do it. And instead of, of, of embracing the one whom God has set before you that did do it. And that through faith in him, your faith is counted as righteousness. The very thing that God requires is righteousness. And what does God require of you? Faith. Because your faith is in the one who is righteous. And this is the way that it has always been. For the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, those who cannot save themselves, God justifies them through their faith. I have nothing to offer. You have nothing to offer. God is, in, is not indebted to us. God is not obligated to us for anything. 
Do you understand that? Do you know that? There is nothing that you can check off on your list that says, God is pleased with me today, and I can be assured of my salvation because I I made sure to pray this morning. I made sure to do my daily devotions. I made sure to hold my tongue when someone angered me today. I made sure to control my hands and not let them fly out the window when someone cut me off today. I got a checklist. I made sure to come to church on the Lord's Day. None of these things earn God's favor. You grew up in church? That doesn't earn God's favor. In fact, if you continue in unbelief, it makes you a greater debtor to God and more accountable to Him. You grew up in a Christian family. It's good. But it only makes you more accountable to the Lord if you remain in your unbelief. Nothing can you present before God. That's why... On the day that you stand before the Lord, and and let's give a hypothetical scenario. The day that you stand before the Lord and he says, why should I let you into my perfect heaven? What are you going to say? Are you going to say, I did some good things. I did go to church. I did read my Bible every now and again. You know what he's going to say? Depart from me. You know what the right answer is? I have Christ. Or as Alistair Begg says, you know, in his hypothetical situation, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's that's the truth, though, isn't it? It is those who are ungodly, who are spiritually bankrupt, who believe in him, believing the gospel, believing... Believing in Christ and His work, believing in He's the object outside of ourselves. He is, He He is the sole object of faith. Not not believing in Christ and then how well I do in my performance of obedience. It's not believing in Christ and and how well I I repented of whatever it is that I had done. Repentance, submission, all of these things are part of the new life that God creates in us by the Holy Spirit. These are not the basis of salvation. These are the fruit of salvation. Faith and justifying faith is in another outside of us, which is Christ. And this has always been the case, again. Always been the case because he's going to now quote David. He's talked about Abraham, the great patriarch of the faith. He's going to bring up David. The great king of Israel. And here's what, here's what he says that David wrote of this. He said this faith that justifies is not a New Testament concept. This faith that justifies what was taught in the Old Testament as well. You see it with Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. His faith was credited as righteousness. But it was still another's righteousness. And then so David's going to say the same thing. 
David, in the time in which he is ruling over Israel, in the time, and don't get me wrong, there were some great problems in the life of David, but this is also a time in, the, in Israel's history in which the law of God was upheld, the law of God was honored, and what does David say? He's going to say, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sin is covered. Even during the time in which God's law is permeating the nation. You would think he would say, blessed are those who are keeping the law because we're going to be justified. No, he doesn't say that at all. David is maintaining the very same thing that was said of Abraham. Again, this is, this is, this is the Old Testament bringing these things out. And you think of David. Now, we know about David's life, but David is one who wrote many of the Psalms, obviously, and who wrote many of the Psalms uh, praising the law of God. So if you, you look back at Psalm 19, for example, and you begin in verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, then I will be blameless. I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Praising the law of God. How great it is. Wonderful. The benefits of, of the law of God in one's life. In the great psalm, Psalm 119, which is, the longest psalm in the scripture, which is the longest chapter in the scripture. And what is the theme? The law of God. You think one of the longest chapters in the scripture. And make no mistake, this takes a while to read. I think Mark Dever may have done it at the Shepherd's Conference one year and it took him 25 minutes to read Psalm 119. And it's all about the law of God. So just as an example, in Psalm 119, beginning of verse 97, David says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, because I observe your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way. That I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. For your precepts, from your precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. That's just a snippet of what he says about the law of God in Psalm 119. David loved the law of God. He sought to observe the law of God. But you also seen even in Psalm 19, he says, acquit me of my faults. I love your law. I observe your law. I'm wiser because I do so. They're sweeter than honey to my taste. But acquit me of my faults. And keep me from committing presumptuous sins. Even David obviously understood that by the works of the law, 
no one will be saved. In the time in which David had committed murder and adultery, in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, he says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, which is given in the law to do. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would have given it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David knew that he needed God's grace. David knew that he could not perform any works of the law and satisfy God's justice against him for committing murder and committing adultery. If this is what you wanted, I would give it, but it's not. The sacrifice that you desire is a broken and a contrite heart, a heart that clings to you in faith, a heart that calls on you for mercy and grace, and, oh God, you will not despise this. I don't have any old te- or any quotes by some of the early Jewish writers concerning David, specifically as, as with Abraham. But just to bring this out, perhaps, again, just to give us a, an understanding, perhaps, of how much that David himself was revered uh, by the people, not only because his line is from the line of Judah, and they knew that the Messiah was coming, and the Messiah would be the son of David and all of that, but because of that very thing, that the Messiah is going to be a son of David. That's how he's, he's referred to. He's, he's of the root of Jesse, that David would have been held in high standards, which is probably why, uh, not only for other theological reasons, but why Matthew, when he begins the genealogy of Christ, what are the two that he mentions? Christ is the son of David, son of Abraham. These are the two that are highly revered. And the one who is coming is greater than David and He's, going to, he's David's Lord is what Jesus will quote in the Psalms. He's greater than Abraham because he was before Abraham. So again, think of this. This is a time in Israel during the time of David that the law of God was revered, upheld, honored. David writes of the great joy that he has in the law of God, but also the necessity of God's grace to pardon sin. And this only confirms what Paul has been saying. Look back to David. What did David say? David did not regard the law of God as something to earn God's salvation. But as one man said, David praised the law as something to delight in and as a means of flourishing. Because that goes back to the purpose of the law and why the law was given in the first place. The law was given to show the righteous and holy character, the the very nature of God. It It was given as a mirror so that people would see their sin and cling to God in faith, understanding that they are rebels before a holy God. And it was given as a means that the people of God may flourish as they seek to keep the things that God has said because we know these things are pleasing to God. So as Luther has said, as I shared with you before, Luther said something to the effect of God uses the law of God as a rod to beat me to Christ. 
Then he gives it to me as a walking stick to walk me through life. And that's the purpose of the law of God. What is Paul saying here? Salvation from the very beginning, even in the time of the Old Testament, has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. One writer says again, he just simply points this out, that Abraham lived some 1,000 years before David. Between them, Moses intervened and gave the law. But the same truth is throughout all the history of God's people. Salvation was by grace through faith alone and Christ alone for Abraham. It was the same for Moses. It was the same for David. It has always been the same. Nothing has ever changed. The righteousness that God requires, the perfection that God requires is outside of ourselves. We, we don't have it. So as this is an Old Testament concept, this has been from the very beginning, David writes of, of the great blessing, the, the great privilege of being justified by faith alone. And this is what Paul is quoting here. David had written this in Psalm 32. And just to, just to point this out again, so far in the book of Romans, the majority of all these Old Testament quotes have been from the Psalms. You know that? With the exception of one, all these have been from the Psalms. To show the relevance of the Psalms and the, and the need to look at the Psalms and study the Psalms in regards to theology and doctrine. Because Paul is just bringing these out. Here's the first thing that Paul writes of Psalm 32 by David. This is really uh, very similar to the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. And what, you, what could you say here? But blessed are the justified. He said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Now looking at this, this word here, blessed, what does it mean? It's actually in the plural in the first verse there, of, or the first part of chapter 7, or verse 7. Blessed are those, it's in the plural, it's in the singular in verse 8, but it comes from the very same root word. What does it mean? What does it mean to be blessed? When Jesus uses the same word in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are those. It conveys the idea of being especially favored. One who receives divine favor, they, they are happy, you could say, or they are privileged. They are privileged. The one writer himself, William Mounts, he says this, talking about this very thing, that this is the same as, as those in the Sermon on the Mount. The same word being used here. That he says, quote, the poor, though weak and powerless now, are in the end privileged because of God's favor toward them. And that's what David's saying. You're blessed. You're privileged. This is how he's beginning this. William Mounts goes on to say, makarios, which is the word blessed. Makarios takes the form of a pronouncement. They are encouraged by the prospect of future consolation and reward, which is blessing, from God and thus are able to face the present with courage and hope. They are privileged. 
They are blessed because their lawless deeds have been forgiven. Their violations of God's law, their iniquity, their sins. The Greek word here for lawless deeds is anomia, which literally means the absence of law. These who despised and rebelled against God's law have received divine favor in spite of their sins. And because they have received divine favor extended to them, they are privileged and they are pronounced blessed. And what is, what is some of the things that Paul is saying here as he is bringing up Abraham, as he is bringing up David, he is speaking to his audience, not only in that time, but for us on uh, 2,000 years out. And he's saying the very same thing. To those who are in Christ, you are blessed because your lawless deeds have been forgiven. Do you consider yourself to be privileged, dear friends? Do you consider yourself to be blessed? That pronouncement of blessing is on you. Because your lawless deeds have been forgiven. The absence of law, the way in which you lived prior to your conversion. All your lawless deeds, your sins, your iniquity. All of it has been forgiven. He says, in the next three statements, emphasize really some of the same truths. Your sins have been forgiven. They have been covered. They have been not accounted to you. Till you think of the idea of being forgiven. It means that your sins, your debt, your earned wages... They've been dismissed. Your guilt has been removed. Think of that. The very thing that you haunt yourself with. Of maybe a specific sin in your life that you have done. Something that that comes to mind and you just beat yourself up because how did I do this? How did I commit this? The guilt is removed. Your sin has been covered, been atoned. They are hidden in Christ now. One writer says, when God hides sin, he makes it completely invisible and casts it into the depths of the sea. Your sins are not taken into account. They're not credited to you. The very wage that you earned, which is Justice because of your sins that you yourself committed. You made the decision to do this or whatever. Your sins, the punishment for your sins is not credited to you. The punishment for these sins is not accounted to you. Again, William Mounts. He says, Paul uses legizomai, which is the Greek word here, credited or taken into account. Paul uses legizomai to declare that God credits or counts faith as righteousness. We can picture faith being set down as a mark on the credit side of a ledger for righteousness rather than the debt side. This concept stands in contrast to crediting wages to someone who has worked to earn them, just as with Abraham. 
Faith is credited as righteousness to anyone who does not attempt to earn them, but rather trusts God to give it for him by his grace, end quote. Why aren't your sins credited to you? Because they were credited to another. You see what he's doing? The righteousness that God requires, you can't do it. You can't earn it. It's outside of yourself. The satisfaction for your sins and the punishment for which you deserve was satisfied by another outside of yourself. What is he doing? He's taking their minds, he's taking their eyes, and he's placing them upon Christ. Look this way. Look to him. That's exactly what he's doing. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins have been covered. Your sins are not taken into account. And you're blessed and you're privileged because you have received this grace of God. And you receive this grace of God because, again, another, another satisfied them for you. What is, what is the thing that we learn we learn in theology, we've, we've talked about it before, but, but the great exchange, right? Your sins credited or imputed to Christ. God pours out his wrath upon his one and only son, the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. The father pours out his wrath upon him and he, the spotless lamb of God who was declared righteous, who was truly innocent, satisfies God's wrath and justice. So that his perfection of keeping the law of God is exchanged. It's it's credited to you as if you had done it. And this is why David is is praising uh, praising the Lord here. he's, he's, He's blessing the people. He's pronouncing these blessings in this psalm. Because it's not just a matter of your sins uh, being forgiven and you have a clean slate. That's not the only thing that, that happens here. It's that because of righteousness being imputed to you, God receives you. And you become the object of God's love. You're the object of his grace and of his mercy. And that's why David says you're blessed. You're blessed because of this. It's not just a matter of, okay, someone has paid your penalty... Someone paid your debt, and now you're at zero. Don't mess up again. And God is over here looking, making sure that they don't do anything else, and he's, he's still aggravated, perhaps, that he has to justify, or that he has to wipe their slate clean. This is not the character of God. Not for those who believe. God says, another paid your debt, and his righteousness is now credited to you. Come, you are mine, and I love you. And my grace is enough. My grace is sufficient. That's what's happening. And so that's why David is is saying, pronouncing these blessings. Blessed are you. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sin has been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And these things are true and they're 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 truths that that make us rejoice because we recognize the one to whom the Lord imputed our unrighteousness, the one whose righteousness the Lord imputed to us is Christ. William Hendrickson, 
He says, God bestowed righteousness on Abraham as a free gift. More fully expressed, this means that God counted for righteousness that which Abraham appropriated by faith, namely the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ credited to Abraham? Absolutely. Because there's no other righteousness that God accepts. All the Old Testament saints had the righteousness of Christ credited to them. That's what the writer of Hebrews brings out, I think, in Hebrews chapter 9. The writer of Hebrews speaks of this very thing. Hendrickson goes on to really sum it up by saying this, From start to finish, from start to finish, therefore, right standing with God is God's gift. It is appropriated by God-given faith. So what are some of the implications of this passage here? Well, some of this is just very common sense things of what he begins to say. From the very beginning, it's very clear. Working for salvation, trying to work for salvation, trying to earn salvation, earn God's favor, leads to misery, hopelessness, and ultimately, it leads to condemnation. Why? Because God is indebted to no man. Because all are guilty. God doesn't honor efforts to earn his salvation or earn his favor. He doesn't honor that. And that's one reason when it comes to the Christian faith and you have people under the Christian umbrella that will say, well, the Muslims or the Buddhists or the Hindus, all these other religions, it's just their way of trying to find God too. And we have a problem. We have a big problem. Because what are all of those World religions or even Christian cults, what are they trying to do? It's the same common denominator. I must do this. I must do this. I must do this. And what is Paul saying? You can't, you can't, you can't. And God does not honor efforts to earn his salvation because only one earned it. Only one was worthy. He grants... He grants this grace and he grants this salvation to those who are poor in spirit, who are spiritually bankrupt. What else? What God requires is something outside of ourselves that is very evident. What God requires of salvation, what God requires for the whole of everything. Is something outside of ourselves. You cannot earn God's favor. This isn't to say that you can't please God. Yes, you can please God. But you please God as a result of what God has done. By the way in which you live now to demonstrate your love and to demonstrate your thankfulness and to demonstrate your appreciation. Yes, you can please God. But those who are without faith cannot please God. The object of our faith is Christ, and our hearts then are desirous to please God by the way in which we live. And we can. We can please God. Because we're living in view of what His Son did. What God requires is outside of ourselves. It's an alien righteousness, as the Reformers had said. 
It's another's, not your own. This is the requirement from the very beginning. So some things to ask. In light of all this, for even genuine believers can fall into this trap. Are you trying to earn God's favor by your works or by your performance? Your performance in obedience. Because if you are, then you already know what kind of misery that that leads to. Because you can't. You just can't. Because no matter how well you try, you're always going to have failure. I'm doing good, I'm doing good, I'm doing good. Maybe I did good for two or three days. At least we deceive ourselves to think such things. But then I fail. Then what happens when I fail? I fail, then it must be, oh God, how can, how can you love me now because of what I did? And the whole time, the reality is, God loves you and he loves me because he loves Christ. And you are in the Son. Dear friends, God is under no obligation to any one of us that we can try to earn salvation or earn his favor. And in fact, this leads into something else too. That you cannot earn God's favor in the sense of you cannot, you cannot make God a debtor to you in this way. Well, God, if you will do this, then I will do this. So by my performance and doing the very thing that I know I should be doing anyway, but I'm going to do it. So I'm going to do this very thing that I should be doing, and you honor that by doing this for me. And what are we doing? We're making God a debtor to us. And again, God is a debtor to no man. Everything God does, everything God grants, everything is by an act of his grace. You can't make deals with God. If you want joy in your life, dear friends, if you want joy in your salvation, you've got to be spiritually bankrupt. You've got to be poor in spirit. When you recognize I have nothing to offer, but God says I have something to offer you. God, I can't live the life that you want of me. Oh, Lord, I'm going to fail. Yes, you're going to fail. But he presents Christ and he says, but he didn't. Oh, Lord, I'm, I'm bad at reading. I have difficulty getting concentrating on reading. I'm not going to read my Bible as much as I should, but you should. I'm not going to spread the gospel. I haven't been spreading the gospel yet. In the manner that I should, in the, in the, with the passion that I should, and God presents Christ and he says, but he did. And anything that you bring up, God is going to present his son and say, he did. He was the perfect one. He prayed enough. He worshiped enough. He did everything enough. Because in God's infinite knowledge of all things, 
He knows we can't. And this is the unique thing about the Christian faith. Christian faith is never us trying to work our way to God. The Christian faith and the blessing of the Christian faith is God came down and carried out everything. And when we recognize that and we see that and we embrace that very truth, that's when there's joy in our life to say, I know I fail every day and I want to please you. But thank you that you saved me in spite of myself and that you gifted us with your son Christ who carried out everything. That through him I know I have peace. Through him I know that I have eternal life. Through him I know that I have assurance. Thank you, Father. That's when you can have real joy. You're never going to be able to earn it just as what Paul is laboring to his audience. But you don't have to earn it because another earned it for you. And I pray that as we understand that and embrace that truth, that we won't labor to earn God's favor because if you are in Christ, you already have it. And you have it because of another outside of yourself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Oh Lord, thank you for uh, the great truths that we find here. Father, you justify the ungodly. You have always justified the ungodly, never, never the godly, never the righteous. The righteous don't have any need for a physician but those who are sick. We acknowledge, Father, that we are sick. We were until you initiated the salvation, until you intervened and made us alive in Christ, granted us faith, and justified us because of the work of your Son. Oh, Lord, thank you for salvation. Thank you that it's not in ourselves and we can have true joy, not misery, not hopelessness because of our failures, but joy in the Spirit, knowing that we have been forgiven because Christ accomplished it all. If there are any here, Father, that do not know you as their Lord, as their Savior, who have not embraced Christ, I pray, Father, that you would make them alive in Christ. Grant them faith that they may call upon Him and receive that that work of, of Christ credited to them that they may be justified. Father, we thank you again for all that you are, all that you've done for us in Christ. And may our lives ref reflect our thankfulness and gratefulness to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all the God's children said, Amen.